1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Andy Green. So Genesis are going on their first reunion tour since 2007. It's also one of the first, if not the first, sort of big post-COVID tours to be announced, and it's on sale now for America. It starts November 15th in Chicago, and it's selling out everywhere. The tickets are super expensive, and people are snatching them up. They're also playing... In Europe, those are rescheduled dates supposedly from like September 15th through October. But it's an interesting test case of a a post-COVID tour, and it it seems like people are ready. And it's also an opportunity to talk about one of the strangest stories in the history of rock and then maybe look later at the broader picture of classic rock reunion tours post-COVID after these older acts all lost a year. But Andy, you are perhaps one of the leading experts in Genesis, in the behind the music when they talk about certain planned reunions, they actually show your article and your byline. You are the man on this, so I'm glad to have you here. Explain what's going on with Genesis now. Why why are they reuniting in 2021 after not reuniting since 2007 and not releasing an album since like 1997? uh and that wasn't even with Phil was it no yeah so what what's going on here
0: i think that what's happening is that phil collins wants to do it it's as simple as that the band has always been at his discretion at least for the past 40 years basically <laughs> and he thought he was retiring in like 2010 and he decided to uh, unretire about five or six years ago and he toured solo for a few years he went to every major market in the whole world and when that was done it was the next logical step was to just do genesis and i think he's doing all this because his son nick is a fantastic drummer and wants to work and it's a chance to sort of play with his son if his son wasn't playing drums i think there'd be no tour because phil can't really play drums these days he can't really stand up for very long and for him, drumming was a big part of his whole experience in the group. But his son now is like a mini Phil, and it's sort of given the band a very surprising new lease on life.
1: What do we know about the feelings of the other members of the band about playing with Phil's son as the drummer?
0: They are so happy that they can go on tour that they'll have like me play drums. or <laughs> They don't care, because Mike and Tony, they can't do much on their own. You know, Mike did have Mike and the Mechanics, which had three very big hits but both singers are now out of the group and one's dead so the current life mechanics they play tiny theaters so for to be back in genesis this is their dream but as they learned in the late 90s if they don't have phil collins they can't do it so basically phil calls the shots and phil's finally ready
1: and this lineup of genesis to be precise is who
0: It's Phil Collins on vocals, it's Tony Banks on keyboard, it is Mike Weatherford on guitar and bass, it's Daryl Strummer, who's been their touring guitarist slash bass player since 1978, and it's Nick Collins on drums, who's 20 years old. And what do you make of the intense demand for these tickets, which might surprise
1: people? This isn't a band that people spend a ton of time thinking about in 2021, but they announced that tickets are on sale and it's just like The Stones or something.
0: I think they are one of the most popular groups on the planet, but you never hear about them. That their last Phil Collins tour before the breakup was 1992. It was football stadiums. It was sold out all over the world, and it was sold out on the strength of their new songs. They weren't an oldies group. They had tons of really new hits at that point. Uh, when they reformed in 07, after having no press for 15 years, They were back in Giant Stadium. They were back in soccer stadiums all over Europe. They're a hugely popular band. They have tribute bands that sell out the Royal Albert Hall. You know, they have tribute bands that are- are,
1: To be clear though, and we'll get into that, that's to the old Genesis though, right? These are tributes to the Peter Gabriel Genesis. There's
0: multiple fan bases. They have the Prague fans of the 70s stuff, and they have the pop fans of the 80s and the 90s stuff. It's almost two different audiences, but you combine them and you have sort of a huge, huge following. And in Europe, they've always been huge. So it's a very big deal, though. I think I think some percent of people, they show up and they expect to hear Sue Sudio and stuff and are confused by the show. I've always noticed that.
1: Right. They don't obviously play Phil Collins' solo songs. None. So, zero. Yeah. And of course, it's very confusing because, and we'll get into this, but the Genesis songs that were written by Phil during his solo phase can be in some ways almost indistinguishable at times from Phil Collins' solo song.
0: I think only a few of them. I can name like two or three where there's not even a hint of Mike and Tony, where there's not a hint of a Prod, it's like some elements to it. I think Just in Too Deep is a song that could easily be solo or be Genesis, but I think it's rare. Fair enough. You
1: know I love you, but I just. To the discerning ear.
0: Yeah, like, to the very discerning ear, yes. <laughs>
1: yes. Let's take it back to the beginning of this band. And this is one of those bands that formed in a very elite private school in England. It's kind of like Mumford & Sons, really. They, they have a lot in common with Mumford
0: & Sons. It's a funny thing that this is before Phil Collins in the 60s. You have this really elite boarding school called Charterhouse which is sort of like Rushmore in the movie Rushmore, but in England. It's for the elite rich kids of England to live at a boarding school. It's the, you know, it's called the public school there, I think, but you know, it's a private school here. And this is where Peter Gabriel met Tony Banks and Michael Rutherford and this guy Anthony Phillips, who was their first guitar player. And they formed a pop group and gave a demo tape to a famous alumni that was named Jonathan King, who was a producer and he had a sort of novelty hit a few years before and he signed them to his label and they recorded a album while still in high school so there are very few major rock bands who cut an album in their earliest earliest stages it would be like the beatles doing a whole record like 1957 or something it captures them when they were just learning to play instruments and just learning to sing and they so it's a very weird album
1: it's called From Genesis to Revelation, and I believe the concept was supposed to encapsulate the entire history of the universe, which is extremely yeah, it hilarious.
0: Was, it was not their idea. Jonathan King was calling all of the shots. They recorded it in like four days or something, and they were and they were told to basically tell the story of the Bible almost in one record. They didn't pick the name Genesis, they didn't pick the album title I th- I which think did looks- pick
1: oh, I saw in two documentaries I saw it said they yeah. did pick the name they picked their own band name genesis at least it was uh, thrown around yeah they they did John King
0: name. always swears that he named them that. Oh, there must so, be some dispute on that subject.
1: I will say I, I saw an interview with him, and he's hilarious. It seems like he looks like he's a Mike Myers character. Like, I cannot believe he's a real person. And he was, he was uh, claiming that the album from Genesis to Revelation, this interview was filmed in like 2005, and he's like, it's like, there are many songs on it that would be huge hits today. And I'm like, no,
0: no, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't be huge hits, but what's weird is that Noel Gallagher hates Genesis, but he loves that record. What has that Bee Gees, the early, not, not disco
1: Bee Gees, but right. Bee Gees of that era influence?
0: Yeah, so he says The Conqueror is a favorite song of his that he plays all the time. That inspired songs on his last solo record. But it's not a real Genesis record in a lot of ways. They were so young, and Jonathan King, against their knowledge, he layered it up with strings. So there's these gushy strings all over the songs. And Peter is so young that he's not a confident singer yet. They don't have a good drummer. It's just this weird outlier in their catalog. And
1: that original guitarist gets such a bad case of stage fright that he has to leave the band. Yeah,
0: it's a key moment in their history that Anthony Phillips was kind of their creative leader. He's a very talented guitar player. And he plays also on their second record, Trespass, which is a lot of ways their first real album. They went away for a long summer at a cottage, and they basically learned to be a band. And they listened to Yes and to King Crimson and the 70s were starting, and they became a prog band, essentially. And they were led by Anthony Phillips and Peter Gabriel, and they recorded a pretty cool album. It's very distinct, yeah, and this is still pre Phil Collins. There's, a, there's I've seen,
1: I've seen people make the argument that that era was more art rock than prog rock, which begs the question of what that what the yeah. difference is. When I saw people saying that, I said, "Geez, you know, I forgot art rock was even a thing. We don't hear you don't hear so much about art rock anymore."
0: Yeah, that's what they called <laughs> prog rock back then. They yeah, turned a- prog, yeah, it just came later. It's before. It made money. It was called Art Rock. And as soon as it moved into stadiums, it was Prague, and and when it was Prague, that meant that they had money for like lasers and like and like smoke machines and shit.
1: So Art Rock is low is low budget prog rock, do you think?
0: Yes, it's the okay. same thing. Though okay. it's more it's it's more organ maybe and less synthesizer. You could get into stuff like that. But but uh, after
1: trespass, that's when the lineup starts to solidify.
0: Yeah, so they toured a bit, they played clubs, and they were always in the van, and then Anthony Phillips said, I can't do this, I've stage fright, I'm sick, and he quit. And they almost broke up. They couldn't imagine a band without him. But they decided to carry on to hire a new guitar player, and they realized that their drummer just sucked. And as long as they were getting a new guitarist, they'd get a new drummer. And through miracle of miracles, they discovered both like one of the best drummers in prog history and one of the great singers and one of the best guitarists. At the same time period, they hired Steve Hackett, and they hired Phil Collins, and that's the most pivotal decision they ever made was Hi Phil Collins. It changed the course of the band's history and of music history, really, because he was a child actor. He was on the West End stage. There was a boy band that was called Flaming Youth that he was in. It was a horrible boy band. and as soon as he joined, they started taking off because he was just so talented. he was both a great drummer and a great background singer. So
1: you cannot discount the importance of Steve Hackett, who is an incredibly innovative guitar player. He really helped establish sort of what prog guitar was, and also laid a path for how to get the electric guitar out of sort of blues rock influences and into this other world. And if you listen to Eddie Van Halen, if you listen to Alex Lifeson of Rush, you hear a lot of influence there, in fact, We actually talked about this in the Eddie Van Halen obituary show. Steve was doing uh, two-hand tapping and other stuff that uh, Eddie Van Halen would later do years before, six or seven years before. So super, you know, so so that's a a lot of talent. He was kind of like the progiest prog part of Genesis.
0: Yeah, and he was frustrated a lot. Because he wasn't the only guy that was playing guitar. There was also Mike Weatherford, who would often play guitar and play bass pedals during the show. He sat down. Which, and which would go by back the way, is
1: where Getty Lee got the idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they sat down on stage, and then Mike would go back and forth between bass and guitar. And since he was a founding member, he had more say. <laughs> so Steve was, you know, he was, he was very talented, but he wasn't part of the Charterhouse gang. He wasn't like in the old boys Genesis world and he really struggled to get his songs on the records and to have his guitar even be high in the mix. It it was a constant frustration. Another day
1: is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
0: You had
1: that definitive lineup for that moment with Peter Gabriel on vocals. Talk about that sort of golden age for the band.
0: Yeah, what happened was there was a lot of these art rock bands that were touring European clubs. There was Gentle Giant, there's all of these groups, and to stand out was difficult, so Peter started to wear these costumes that got very elaborate. He walked on stage once in his wife's red dress and a fox's head, and that got the band on the cover of the magazine Melody Maker. And so their stage show got very elaborate, and that got them lots of attention, and that grew their audience. And those early albums on Nursery Crime, Foxtrot, and on Sunday and By the Pound, these are some of the best prog records of all time. They're brilliant albums, complex songs. I think Separate Ready is the best song of all time. It's my favorite song ever. It's a 20-minute epic in, like, six parts. It's just a masterpiece.
1: Hey! Waiting for you. Hey, my if you want people to understand what did 70s British Prague sound like at its peak, those are basic, I mean there are other ones, but those would be very good choices of albums to play. They helped define what Prague was.
0: Yeah, they're foundational albums. And they're so purely British. It's some of the most British music ever made in the rock era. On Yes albums, you hear hints of like American bands and harmonies and everything, like Simon Garfunkel, some blues guitar, which answers it's just purely British. It's like the most purely like British sound that you can ever hear. Is some of these songs?
1: You're saying they were the whitest band ever at that point. Is that is that what you're gently trying to I'm say? Not,
0: I'm not. I'm not talking racially. I'm just talking <laughs> culture-wise. That what,
1: what it, is it is it is interesting that said that that Phil Collins then became sort of beloved. Among some black audiences Because of his very uh, cool
0: solo hits But yes But in these early years Phil was an amazing drummer He was key for harmonies That his voice and Peter's They'd lock on stage they lock on the records And it was an amazing blend Because they're both great singers But Phil didn't write much In those early years He evolved, he evolved slowly as a songwriter In 1974 They make The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway Which is a very important moment
1: Yeah, it's interesting because The way that history sees it as this, you know, sort of peak Genesis album, peak Prague Mm. album is so different from the way the band saw it at the time, which is this moment of extreme strife when uh, Peter Gabriel was taking too much control and and doing too much on stage.
0: Yeah, that basically that Peter Gabriel, for all of his genius, was not meant to be part of a band. He's so creative. He's so uncompromising. I mean, he's even said a lot of times that there are there are not many great books that are written by committee. You know, you need one author, which it's a bad analogy because there are great albums made by bands, you know. But <laughs> in his mind, he couldn't compromise. So with The Lamb, he had this idea for this crazy story, which is almost hard to even, like, describe the story of The Lamb. It's about a Puerto Rican guy in New York City that gets sucked into some alternative universe. <laughs> and he said to the band, look, I'm going to write all the lyrics by myself and you guys will do the music. And they agreed, but they weren't thrilled about it. And then it was just his vision. It was hard to explain. Then they decided that the tour would be the album straight through with Peter in costume the entire time. And the album, it got delayed, so the tour started before it came out. So you go see this show, and it's a whole double album that you've never heard before. It was a difficult time. They did a ton of shows, and Peter was the first one married. He was the first one that had a child, and his priorities started to be elsewhere, and he decided during the tour that he was going to quit.
1: Well, there's two things. First of all, I think it's, it's under-noted that in this era As you said, he had his first child. I guess when the child was first born, she was pretty sick and he was really concerned. And it sounds like the band was just tremendously unsympathetic to this.
0: Yeah, they were recording the album and his daughter was born prematurely and they didn't even know if she'd make it. So he was at the hospital a lot of the time and they couldn't understand this. They've apologized since then, but they were like, "We have a deadline."
1: Yeah, they're like tapping the wrist, and he's like in the hospital. I mean, it's like, you could see how that alone could destroy a band. It, it was just this youthful callousness on their part.
0: Yeah, they didn't understand. They were in their early twenties. They had no kids, and they and uh, they were trying to make it. And studio time then's very expensive. They had tour dates booked. You know, they had to finish this record. Just total dicks. Uh, yeah,
1: but that was it. And then there was also there was like one costume that pushed it too far on stage.
0: Yeah, that during the second part of the show, he was essentially in a giant testicle outfit. Not even joking, it's designed to look, uh, it's a testicle. He's a testicle creature called a Slipperman. So he's wearing all these bubbles, but they couldn't get the mic near his mouth. And so the vocals for many of these shows are very distorted because the mic was far from his mouth. And to the guys in the band who are serious musicians, they're like, are you fucking kidding me? They can't even hear you, you know, but he was very focused on the visual and they didn't have the budget or the technology to really do this show that Peter wanted in his mind. So most nights it just failed. You know, it was it was a very difficult tour and they did one hundred and two shows. It was just grueling. It was every night for months and months and months and months and months. And none of
1: this filmed, you said.
0: Yeah, and they filmed none of it. And they were in Cleveland, Ohio, which was my hometown, at Swingo's Hotel when Peter called the band meeting. I was like, look, I can't do this. I'm going to quit. And that would have broken most bands because he was the only one who was famous. He was their leader. He was the only... He was the face of the band. And they briefly talked about carrying on just the four of them as a instrumental band, which would have been a very bad plan. <laughs> and they, they
1: actually auditioned other singers and then finally... Phil was like, well, I can do better than that. And he just sort of yeah. did it.
0: Yeah, it was out of sort of desperation after lots of failed auditions with people that were trying to, to sing like Peter, that Phil just tried to sing the, the songs. And he was great. That's Phil's a powerhouse vocalist. But it was still a very questionable proposition if without Peter, the band could even work. There were many doubters that thought that he was the leader. He was the band. If you take him out, there's no band. It's the Stones without Mick Jagger. It's not a band.
1: What's so bizarre is that it did not transition directly into pop genesis fronted by Phil Collins. It was much more gradual than that.
0: It was a slow evolution that basically that the next two records were A Trick of the tail, and were Wind and Wuthering. Both came out in 1976, and they're prog records, but they were bigger. They moved the band into larger venues. Phil found his voice on stage and became a great frontman. But after the 77 tour, which was their biggest tour yet, Steve Hackett quit. He was writing all these songs that they didn't put on the records. And he just was tired of being seen like a helping hand. That Tony Banks would write you know, songs that would always make the albums, and Steve wrote some great songs that he put on his solo records at the time, but he left. And then when he left, and, and he has released like something
1: like thirty solo albums. Like he, yeah. did, he never, it, you know, and that's I've actually listened to some of it. it. Some of them are really interesting, but he's a guy who just really went off and committed to his thing and and abandoned commerciality, which is really interesting. But anyway, so that leaves, and then there were three. They they, they make a record <laughs> admitting that they're down to a, a, a smaller lineup.
0: Right, but without Steve there, they had more permission to kind of do a pop thing. And by 78, it's post punk now. Prague is really seen as this bad thing. A lot of the big Prague bands of the era are now like blowing up and just collapsing. So they make Follow You, Follow Me, which is a real pop song. And that was the first real radio hit. And they actually brought women to their concerts because before that, it was the ultimate dude fest at all times. The, their audience was a hundred percent male. There wasn't <laughs> one woman on the planet that was listening to that band. And then, with and then there were three. And things change, and they get more popular. But then the eighties comes, and Phil's marriage just like collapses, and things change in a very big way. <laughs>
1: The funny thing about the Phil Kahn story is, if you're telling a story, you get to say, and then Phil's marriage collapsed more than once. But yes, <laughs> it's a it's common true. narrative. But yes, yeah, so he embarks on songwriting projects. He just starts yeah. writing in the wake of that divorce. And it's not clear, I guess, whether he. It wasn't necessarily intended to all be solo, right? He. he
0: Seems to have played everything for
1: the band or or
0: not? Yeah, he had no plans for this material, but they took off 1979. And during that time, he started to write songs. And he went in his basement, he got a brand new drum machine, and he wrote In the Air Tonight.
1: tonight.
0: And Phil swears on his life he played it for the band, and they're like, nah, I don't think so. And they swear that didn't happen, but he used it to basically seed a solo record, which was not seen as a big project at the time because Mike had done one and Tony, he'd done one too. It was sort of seen as a side project, but the thing exploded and the first single was in the air tonight. And that established him as a real superstar and he could have quit it at that point. But for the next 12 years, he divided his time evenly between Genesis and his solo work.
1: And I believe that the song Misunderstanding, which is on Duke, the Genesis album around that time, was plucked from the solo sessions, which, which makes sense when you hear it. There must be some misunderstanding.
0: Right, and the song Behind the Lines is on both Duke and Face <laughs> Values. So you hear Phil's approach to it, where there's horns and stuff.
1: So in my hands. Picture, you call my name.
0: And their approach, which is sort of proggier, it's a fascinating look at how the same exact song would be handled differently by Phil solo and by Genesis.
1: I'm not sure that move has been tried many times. It's not like Pete Townsend had songs that were both on his solo albums (laughs) and on Who albums, although that would have been utterly fascinating.
0: Yeah, no, it was very unique. And Phil's work habit in this time was just absolutely insane. He would do long solo tours. He would do long Genesis tours. He was the drummer in this jazz fusion band (laughs) called Brand X that would tour a lot also. And he's producing for Eric Clapton and Robert Planned in Adam and in everybody else in the 80s. He just worked every single day.
1: And it starts to explain what he was doing playing uh, with Zeppelin at Live Aid. He was just the guy.
0: Yeah, he was the guy. And then 1980 is the album Duke, which is sort of like the 80s have come. They get haircuts, the songs get shorter, but there's still a lot of prog to it, but it's the 80s. A song like Turn It On Again is a very 80s song but it's still uniquely genesis it's in a very bizarre time signature (laughs) you know but it's it's still a pop song you just can't really dance to it
1: and
0: And then abacab was even bigger in 1981 and they just as the decade went on it's a group where every single record from 1967 to 1987 was more popular than the previous record, and it was sort of exponential.
1: In 83, they had this song, That's All. Just as I thought it was going all right I found out I'm wrong when I thought it was right It's always the same, it's just a shame that's another one I would say, if you put a gun to my head and said, is that a Phil Collins song or Genesis song, without me looking it up, I might not remember. That's the kind of uh, song I'm, I'm pointing to, where, where I think people do get a little confused if they're not super No, fan. sure. Yeah.
0: I can see that. And as Phil's solo career starts to take off, the power structure in the band changes. It becomes more Phil is calling a lot of the shots. And then 1986 is a peak year for Genesis and the solo projects. It's this (laughs) insane thing happened where they had Invisible Touch which is like their thriller or something. It had seven hit singles off of it and they went out and played soccer stadiums all over the world. The same year is Peter Gabriel did so, which is in your eyes, it's Sledgehammer. At the same time is also Mike and Mechanics which is Mike's band obviously. They have All I Need is a Miracle. Which is a huge, huge hit. Steve gets jealous of all this, starts a pop band with Steve Howe from Yes. It's called GTR, and they have a huge pop hit (laughs) called When the Heart Rules the Mind. When the Heart Rules the Mind.
1: They also so have one of the most famous, I must mention, one of the yeah. most famous record reviews of all time, I believe it was by J.D. Considine. Uh, the band was called Guitar GTR, and his review yeah. was Total Shit TTLSHT, yeah. which is, I, you know, I think probably the inspiration for the Spinal Tap thing of like, they can't say that, can they? Um, but right. yeah. So there's yeah.
0: a UK top 10 chart where I think six of the 10 songs <laughs> are either by Genesis or their solo <laughs> projects. And they play Wembley Stadium for four nights, all sold out. And this is like they were essentially the biggest band in the planet at that moment.
1: This goes back to something we were talking about on the Tina Turner episode where there just was a weird thing in the 80s despite MTV driving everything, where middle-aged people were totally allowed to have huge hits. Very confusing.
0: It's when Steve Winwood and Rod Stewart and Billy Joel and Elton John, John Fogarty, you could be like a paunchy guy in his late 30s balding and everything and have like number one pop hits. It was weird. It was sort of like VH1 was going, and you would just—it would just happen.
1: But I feel like they showed Genesis videos on MTV, maybe even into the '90s. Maybe I'm confusing VH1 and and MTV. Yeah,
0: I think, and more of the '80s. I think Land of Confusion was their signature video hit. That's one of the only like really great videos with the puppets.
1: So I Can't Dance wasn't on MTV. I feel like it was.
0: was like nirvana time there may have been a little bit i think that's a vh1 song i swear that it got mtv play. but
1: i admittedly okay. we one would flip back and forth at that point uh, yes but actually no on youtube they have the mtv most wanted i can't dance video premiere so, so it was oh, okay yeah it was uh, in fact i was played. nine years old so <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. no it wasn't but yeah imagine alongside nirvana it's like i can't dance now you, yeah. how do you feel about is there a point at which the pop stuff gets too much for you, or are you a fan of it all?
0: I love Invisible Touch, though a few songs I really don't love. But mostly it's great. And even on the poppiest records, there's songs like Domino, which is a 10-minute prog song. And on We Can't Dance in 1991, there's Fading Lights, there's Jimmy Lee Sleep, there's these great prog epics. They never really stopped doing the prog stuff. It was really just the single started to take off in a big way, and... I mean, I don't love "Invisible Touch." I don't love "I Can't Dance." It's sort of the, it's, it's like the least cool thing ever is a song <laughs> "I Can't Dance" and the video of them dancing. If you had to think of what's the lamest '90s thing <laughs> I like, almost ever, it's them doing the dance. It's just cringeworthy in a lot of ways.
1: And yet, an unforgettable image. But in that decade, finally, the the Phil Collins version hits a wall.
0: Yeah, well what happens was we can't dance sort of it's sort of one of the last big records by a old school group pre-grunge they got it in right under the wire and then what happens was the tour was enormous and then another film marriage fell apart and he got very depressed and was working on a solo record in which he was going to play every instrument and do this really deep album about his marriage collapsing And there's a charity concert in 1993 that booked Genesis. So in the middle of this really hard time period, he was pulled onto the stage to play with Genesis. And he's on stage at night. He's singing the old songs. And he thought to himself, I can't keep doing this. This is not my band. I'm singing lyrics I didn't write. I don't want to keep doing this. And he didn't go public for about three years, but he left. And they didn't know what to do, but they'd survived a first thing you were leaving. So they were like, what the hell? You know, look at somebody else. (laughs) And it really didn't go well, to put it mildly.
1: It was actually around the same time as Van Halen 3. They should have toured together.
0: Yeah, yeah. it (laughs) It was the same time period. And it was only, it was We Can't Dance was very recently in the rearview mirror. They were a stadium caliber band. So they hired this guy, Ray Wilson, that's the Scottish singer, who was in this sort of Scottish grunge band called Stilskin that had won, like, kind of regional hit, <laughs> but very forgotten. They made an album that was called Calling All Stations, but 1997 was not 1991. <laughs> A very, very, very long six years passed. And even Phil, he was no longer scoring hits, really, on his own. And well, he went they, off to Disney,
1: the world of uh, Broadway and right. Disney. Yeah.
0: yeah. So they put out the album. It totally bombs. They plan on touring arenas in the states. They put a few shows on sale. They sell nothing. They move them down to theaters, and even the theaters didn't sell. So this is a band that was playing giant stadium that basically couldn't play at the Beacon Theater six years later. It was just astounding. It was the collapse was so, so sudden. And it must and be. Por- it must that- be
1: pointed out that Van Halen. As much as Van Halen did not do that well with Van Halen 3 with Gary Sharon, you know, they were not playing to empty venues. You know, they didn't have to downskill the theaters and then not sell the theaters. This was a more extreme situation even,
0: so to speak. Yeah, they weren't Van Halen, that they weren't called like Rutherford. You know, it was to most people, it was the Phil Collins band. And they didn't even realize that the sledgehammer guy was their first singer. That was not known by the public then. That was a forgotten thing. And they toured Europe, at least, and it did something, but when it was done, they were like, screw this, this is, this is embarrassing, let's just end the band. And they did. Now, in 2005, something
1: amazing almost happened, and you were really reporting on this at the time, I remember it.
0: Yeah, this is one of the great lost tours ever that didn't happen. That 2005, the band meets with Peter Gabriel and Steve Hackett. Phil's on tour. They go to Glasgow. They meet in the boardroom of a hotel, and Peter has told them that he regrets that they didn't film the Lamb. And he wanted to do a few Lamb shows with the five of them, and he had an idea that they could put things on his face and project onto the screen the character of Rael and it would look like him, like a motion capture thing, live. And he wanted to finally do the lamb right. And they were really psyched about it. And Phil was into it. Phil wanted to play drums again and just be the drummer. But so Peter shows up and his manager's there. And the band thinks that they're there to talk about how to do it. And it turns out Peter was less than sold. And when they started saying to Peter, they go, Peter, if you do this twice, you lose money. You have to do it like 40 times. (laughs) You know, we'll do twenty in Europe and do twenty in America, and then he was like, Oh, I don't know about that. I wanna just do it a couple times and they were like, Well, it will cost you like ten million dollars then. You know, you can't do that.
1: I don't know like what I don't know what's up with these guys. The same thing with Robert Plant, like he just would do the two oh two shows, all you have to do is do it forty times. Otherwise it doesn't make sense, it's a business proposition, and it's cruel to the fans, which they don't care. They couldn't care less, but it's cruel to the fans.
0: Yeah. I asked Peter later about this and he goes, yeah, the same time period, I got a call from Richard Branson and he wanted to start the Elders Foundation where a bunch of rich people would donate their money to charities and he wanted me on the board. I thought that was a better use of my time. I'm like, Peter, like, what are you thinking? No, no. So Peter walks out and is like, screw this. And then Steve leaves and the three of them are there and they're not too pleased about it because they were kind of teased with this. And Phil goes do you want to just do this as the three piece? And they're like, hell yeah, we do. And that was a bigger deal anyway, as far as like ticket sales. So in 07, they go back on tour and it's the same lineup as the pop era. And like you were saying, like you sort of
1: need to see the video from this tour because it, this wasn't some little tour. It was, they, they had a, a stage setup that was kind of like the U2's Claw setup. It probably was the same guy designed it. It, yeah. it was a big, big stadium tour.
0: It was a big stadium tour, but Phil had very young kids at the time, and he only agreed to do 40 shows. So it was a short tour, but when they were in Europe especially rome they played outside of the coliseum to like all of rome because in italy genesis from day one have been gods. They're like, they're like the biggest band there so they played just oceans of fans like hundreds of thousands of people and it was the most phil had played drums in a very long time he was playing drums about 40 minutes a night or more and he screwed his back up And it was the start of a very hard period in his life where he had nerve damage and surgeries to fix it that made things worse, and it was all said and done. He couldn't play drums anymore. He couldn't really hold, like, silverware in his hand for a time period. Now it's so bad, he can't really walk.
1: That's rough. Um, But he got it together enough that they are doing this tour. It's almost certainly the last tour for Genesis. I'm sure you'll be there.
0: Yeah. I'm going to opening night. I will be in Dublin. I cannot wait. I still have a dream of a Peter Gabriel tour. I think in like four years it could happen. Four and
1: years? Sure. Why? <laughs> How old is that going that
0: They'll be like 74 then. Yeah. That's fine.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and Nick can play drums. And they've released some video of the rehearsals. And you see a small drum kit by Nick. There's a lot of rumors Phil's going to try and play some light percussion work. Hmm. So we'll see. Now let's take a step
1: back and just remember that as we've discussed and written about, uh, this year has been brutal for all sorts of touring artists, it's been messing with livelihoods of of artists and venues of all levels. For older artists, and we talked to a bunch of them, it it posed a, a unique sort of threat because it took a year of potential work in this time when they don't have a billion years to spare. So, yeah. what, what do you see going forward as far as some some maybe things that haven't happened that might happen because of this, or that ne- will never happen because of this? What, what what's going on?
0: It's funny. Is all of these big classic rock acts they've been hinting at retiring for like twenty years now, and it's often a way to sell more tickets. But a lot of these people are now pushing eighty years old, so they're reaching the real limitations of what their bodies can do like charlie watts will be eight years old when the, the stones tour if they got next year
1: yeah we're in the so, i mean it should be emphasized we're in the final decade at most of you know basically classic rock touring i, I would say
0: yeah of the major acts of the 60s and 70s yeah, yeah paul mccartney is not going to be 86 years old and playing three-hour concerts or anything it's just virtually impossible So, I think that a lot of these tours, if they aren't billed as such, will essentially be farewell tours. That if the Who go out, which they're going to, it's hard to imagine they can go for that much longer. And even, you know, Springsteen and the E Street Band is They will live forever. They will live forever. They'll live forever. They'll live forever. They'll live forever. (laughs) Bruce will be 95 years old and playing four-hour shows. But... Can Max Weinberg, who's down in his seventies, drum for four hours a night? You know, it's he's it's gonna get tricky. Well,
1: you know, what I'll say is I happen to know in that particular case this is a guy who's been the whole pandemic, it's an interesting case, this is someone who's been training every day during the whole pandemic just to make yeah. sure that he can. But you, but it cannot, as he would admit, it, they all would, it cannot last forever. But it can last, yeah. they have a good five to seven years, I would say. Sure, uh, I yeah. think
0: Bruce is a special case, yeah. but I just interviewed Pete Townsend and he told me Daltry is going crazy, that he calls him all the time and it just screaming, I need to fucking sing, I need to be on stage, I, I will lose my voice, I can't just do nothing. You know, for some people, like Daltrey, it's sort of torture to realize that every day they're not out there. was is is one less day they have to go do it. So who knows about Aerosmith? Who knows about Rod Stewart? Who knows about John Fogarty or so many of these people? And even Roger Waters. I mean, he's late 70s now, and he has a huge tour booked. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, I
1: think he's going to do that, and then I wouldn't be surprised if that was it, actually, in his case. Yeah. You know. But also, actually, that's a great case because I actually asked him, you know, like, wouldn't it be nice? It was the beginning of COVID. And we were all very emotional. And I said, you know, would, mm. wouldn't it be nice? Everyone's losing so much. Doesn't it make you realize how little time is left? Maybe you and uh, Gilmore and, and, and <laughs> should, should, should just get back. And he's like, no, bloody wouldn't be nice. You know, so it, yeah, it's yeah. just some people are not going to see the sentimentality of it. But we'll see. I would say I would if I had to guess one. I don't know what it would be, but w- at least one totally unexpected reunion will come out of all well, this.
0: I think the Beach Boys are going to do something for their 60th. That's (laughs) maybe a bit B-list right now, but something, yeah.
1: Oasis, that'll probably be the one. They're not classic rock, but I bet that's the one.
0: Uh, I think that's 10 years away. Yeah.
1: I would bet big money on that one, though. That, but that's, well, that's, that's just,
0: just inevitable. That's not classic rock, though. Uh, it sort of is these days. Yeah,
1: right. What well, that's what's going to happen is what's left of, you know, when we say classic rock, we're going to mean Oasis, Pearl Jam, and the Foo Fighters, is what's Yeah, happen.
0: and they will take over. And like Guns N' Roses are the new Rolling Stones. Right. It's just uh, the way it's worked out.
1: And that's what will happen with Oasis, by the way, is after like the first five gigs. It'll be just like Guns N' Roses, where it's just like every bit of excitement and drama are completely drained of it, and they just go around the world making money, and no one's at all surprised by any of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a slight chance that Noel is so stubborn, though, that he'll never do it. Well, slight. Anyway, so we'll see. That's our show for today. Andy Green, thanks so
1: much for joining me. You've been listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. We'll be back next week here on XM Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. They're always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.